I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is author Amy Sands Brodoff. She's here to talk about her new book, The Sleep of Apples. You can find more at her website, amysandsbrodoff.com. That's A-M-I-S-A-N-D-S-B-R-O-D-O-F-F.com. As always, you can listen to this podcast on the Rendering Unconscious podcast stream or head over to our YouTube channel to watch the video at Chapar Films YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Trapart Film. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T Film at YouTube. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Available from Chapar Books, 2019. For more, you can visit the publisher's website, trapart.net. T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. You can support the podcast at our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. Thank you so much for supporting Rendering Unconscious Podcast. Your support is greatly appreciated. Well, since you just had a new book come out, I guess we should start with that. What I read that you you pull from your life and experience to write your books, what prompted this book in particular? Well, you know, it's a really complex mesh where I pull some things from my life, but they're they're really transformed because I'm a, really a fiction writer. And then there are things that I write about that are purely imagination or from my obsessions or concerns. Some of the elements that came from my life is I, before the pandemic hit, I lost my mom, my dad, and my beloved other mother. I don't like the term stepmom. So I was really, you know, mortality was, was really very much on my mind. And I discovered a couple of family secrets that actually led to inspiring the first story in the book, What's Mine is Yours, which people find very relevant to COVID. And I'll speak more about that. And the novella that is the title novella, The Sleep of Apples. So I was, I was really a daddy's girl and really adored my dad. And he was a doctor and kind of had a savior complex, I would say. He wanted to rescue and save and take care of people. And after his death, I discovered that I always wondered why there was a 12 year gap between my aunt Bobby and my dad who was older, 12 years older. And after my dad's death, I found out that there had been another sister. And that when my dad was five, he contracted measles and his baby sister caught it from him and died. And he felt that his parents, particularly my grandmother, his mother, never forgave him. And when I discovered this about my dad, I mean, often, you know, we love our parents or we have conflicts with them or it's complicated. 
but we don't always know them as people, you know, we know them as parents. But when I found that out, I saw how profoundly it had shaped my father. So that's very much fictionalized in the story, What's Mine is Yours, where one of the main characters of The Sleep of Apples, Miri, discovers this about her dad. And it's, I think it's, it's a pretty dramatic discovery. And with the title novella, I had a really tough relationship with my biological mom, who was a psychiatrist. <laughs> and I loved her, but we just, we just clashed. And there were times in my life that we didn't even speak. And when I found out that she was terminally ill with lung cancer, I wanted to spend time with her. And I wanted to see if I could heal our relationship because I just had the sense that I would feel better if I could do that. So I traveled often from Montreal to New York where she was living. And we talked a lot and we took a walk if she was able. And she told me that she'd formed a very close bond with the grocery delivery man who was 25 years her junior and had been a pilot and was very handsome and they talked for hours. And I was just fascinated with this little confession. And it was really the seed of the novella uh, the Sleep of Apples, where Miri, who's the character in the first story as a child, in the final story, she is has ovarian cancer and she forms a relationship with the grocery delivery man who helps her, well, I don't want to give away too much, but die the way she, she wants to die. And so those are some elements. Um, there are some other elements from my life. I think that even though I write from imagination, I think if I'm writing about a particular topic, I really have to understand it inside out. And one of my biggest causes is mental health, mental illness. And I have several people close to me who grappled with severe mental illness, such as schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. And so I know those illnesses, how devastating they are. And so I have a very short, story in the book um, called Will the World Pause for Me, uh, about a teenage girl, very gifted and artist who sees her mind changing. She's seeing things, she's not sure if they're there, she's hearing voices. And it was a really painful and difficult story to write because it's like being an actor. You really have to embody the characters, you have to be them. So even though I have not suffered from schizophrenia myself, my older brother does. And, you know, I grew up, you know, it comes on in sort of teenage years. And, and then I also volunteered at Fountain House in New York City, which is a very humanitarian place, kind of a clubhouse for people with schizophrenia who've been cut off from their families. And, they have Thanksgiving dinner, they have classes. I taught creative writing. My husband taught um, technical stuff. And so basically I'm saying I, I felt confident enough to write about schizophrenia. So that's another thing, quote, from my life. And the final thing from my life, the final one that I can think of is that, I guess it's six years now, I found out that I had breast cancer, which came as a big shock. And one of the characters in the book um, grapples with that, Rachel. So I also, it's kind of comforting everything I go through in my life. I feel like 
well, maybe it'll give me some material. So this is, those are some of the elements, but I want to be really clear that you can't really connect the dots that, you know, because it's, I'm very much a fiction writer. I love to imagine, I love to transform. I don't want to be married to any detail from life. Yeah, but that's the sign of a true artist, isn't it? That when things come up in your life, kind of work through them through the medium of your art, whatever kind of art that is. Yes, and I think you have to have a, a modicum of distance perhaps to make that work. Um, and, and there's certain times when people write from life, it just doesn't work at all. It just feels flat. So I guess you have to pick the right experiences um, to work with. And usually the ones that, that really, as I say, get that fiction antenna buzzing that are really exciting and troubling. And because you want to shake people up. I mean, one thing I've been encountering, my work is intense and some people love it, but then some people don't like to be disturbed. You know, they want pastel flowers in the garden and they're not gonna like my work. <laughs> That's the thing that I love the most about fiction though, and, and art in general is like, you can kind of speak to truth and say things and speak about things almost in a more direct way than you can in like day-to-day -day life because it is like a fictionalized setting or an artist can do like a performance piece or make a film about something and like really things that resonate with people or really hit home and things that might be uncomfortable that aren't as able to people aren't able to say as easily sort of day-to-day. -day. I think that's really true and and to add to that I, I think that people often I think art can really help to heal the world and change the world. And I think people can often be really moved by characters or work of art. Whereas if they're going to see a documentary or, you know, we get very numbed by the news and we kind of shut down and we can't take anymore. But if you're inside a story and you care about the characters, um, it gets inside you and it's, it can be a very deep experience. I mean, the fiction that I love, it really stays with me. And that's one of the signs of, of a work that is really strong is that it doesn't just vanish like, like smoke, you know, it, it sort of burrows in and, and sticks with you. And that's one of my goals with my work. Exactly, and you really like go on the journey with the characters. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How did you start writing in the first place? Well, I'm one of those people, uh, I always knew I wanted to be a writer from really from childhood. I, I loved to read. I learned to read, I remember in first grade. And so I was a big reader and my older brother, the one who became ill later, we used to take long walks in our neighborhood and kind of make up stories out loud together and sort of oral stories. And I just always wanted to be a writer. So I didn't have to figure out, you know, what do I want to do? My, I come from a really medical family up through the great grandparents. Like we have like, I don't know, 30 doctors, some deceased, but my mother, my father, both grandfathers, my uncles, my cousins, my brother, one of my sons, it's just a very medical family. So my parents, you know, first thought, Amy, you know, be a doctor. <laughs> No, not for me. Um, I mean, I really am fascinated with medicine and you'll notice there are a lot of uh, doctor characters and patient characters in my work or client characters. And, you know, then they said, well, how about a lawyer? Lawyer's right. No, didn't want to do that. 
teaching. I do do some teaching and mentoring. I love that. But I just pursued my dream. My dad, I think, who I was, as I said, quite close to, always emphasized, you know, pursue your dreams and find work that you love. So I feel very fortunate. And I do do other things such as mentoring and teaching. And, you know, in the past, I've done some public relations, you know, to to earn my bread, but um, I pretty much have stuck with writing. I, I kind of broke out later in life, though I had always been writing. Yeah, and I, I, the story about your father and uh, losing his sibling, you know, it's such a point, poignant story and really speaks to how people do kind of form things. So at such a young age, and then that ends up driving them in their adult lives, you know? Yeah, it kind of broke my heart because I, I could kind of see why he became such a savior and why he was rather an anxious person and very, very overprotective of, of me and, and my siblings. And But it, it broke my heart that he felt that he had never been forgiven for that, even though, of course, it wasn't his fault. And people find it relevant to COVID, of course, because people have caught COVID from people and died and then maybe the other person has survived. So it was sort of relevant to, it just by serendipity happened to be relevant to our current moment. Yeah, absolutely. And with all the mortality and loss that's happened over the past couple of years. For sure. What a time we're in. Still not, you know, over, I guess, but starting to feel a little more open, a little more like we can go back to some of the things we love. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and mother-daughter relationships are difficult. I also had a difficult relationship with my mother, or have, I should say. She's still with us. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because I didn't, like, I didn't, there was also a period of time where we weren't really speaking. And it's interesting that, like, all the different places I ended up moving, not really knowing what she had done in her younger years, I kind of ended up acting out things that she did that I didn't know she did until much later when we kind of grew oh, wow. closer again. So well, it's, it's weird it. how that happens, but also super interesting. Yeah, mother and daughter relationships are complicated. I had this very close relationship with my so-called other mother who married my dad when I was 10. And she she was an artist, she was a painter. And um, I had a much less fraught relationship with her. So that was nice that I had that. I mean, she would go to the end of the earth if I needed you know, a dress for something. She, she was just really, really giving. Whereas my mom, I still have a memory like we went shopping like, okay one more minute we have to leave you know she she just was my mom was difficult she really was but interestingly I'm so glad I had that healing time with her because I it's not festering for me whereas there are times in my life I was so angry with her and I feel at peace and and that's a great gift um emotionally not to feel angry not to feel hurt it's you know and it it happened, I think, because I spent that time with her. And it, it wasn't always great. Like sometimes I, I tried to bring up things that I had brought up with her before. And she would say, oh, you always tell me that. <laughs> it was hard to believe she was a psychiatrist because with her own kids, she was pretty difficult. But I that, think that happens. <laughs> she had a very difficult relationship with her mother. My grandmother on my mom's side was quite a daunting figure. Florence and so it was kind of 
going down the generations, I guess. Yeah, exactly. No, it's the same thing. My mom had a difficult relationship with her mother as well. So things get enacted and reenacted and kind of mm-hmm. transmitted through generations. Absolutely. And I feel like also if you can kind of heal that or come to terms with it, and like you said, start seeing your parents as people and be able to kind of understand them more from that perspective when you're older, then that really helps. It's hard yeah, to do I, that when you're when you're young, but yeah, I think the turning point for me, and I'm I, I this may be true of others, was when I myself became a mom, and then I kind of had a really inside experience of you know, what a huge thing it is to be a mother. And, and then I became a little bit more empathetic with my parents, with my mom. Yeah, and how there's so much ambivalence towards mothers. <laughs> oh, yeah, and mothers are blamed for everything. And one thing that I feel really terrible about, as I mentioned, my older brother has schizophrenia. And in that era, you know, it was bad mothering that caused it, which we know is completely ignorant and horrible. So in addition, you know, it was so painful for my parents uh, because my brother, um, you know, he was handsome. He had an IQ in the genius bracket. He was just a beautiful person. And then schizophrenia is so, so devastating. So in addition to dealing with the loss and pain of having a child with the most severe form of mental illness, she was being blamed like it was her fault. So that's awful. Now we know true that it's, you know, other, it's a brain disease and there's genetic factors. And, but so I, I, I feel for her about that. And, and, you know, there was something I talked with her a bit about in her life. And she told me she'd gone through a real depression when my brother was diagnosed. And, you know, we were able to really share some, some things together that I'm grateful for. Where did you start becoming interested in kind of mental health and mental illness in the first place? Well, I I think I was always interested in it. You know, I'm very big reader and I'm drawn to literature and literature is so much about, um, well, instead of saying mental health, mental illness, just just the complex, makeup of of characters who are complicated like people and have so many facets. So I became interested in it through my reading. I became interested in it. My mom was a psychiatrist. I actually admired her a lot. And another thing to say about her is that when I was growing up, there were very few uh, mothers in my friend group who worked. She was the only one. And I admired her. And, you know, everyone else was a stay-at-home mom. And I also felt a little bit envious because the the moms were always around. And my mom was really busy. She was one of the few women in her medical school class at New York University. So I became interested in it through my mother. Um, I would sometimes meet her at her office after she finished works. And, you know, I didn't know anything about the patients, but through reading and then of course, you know, loving people who ended up grappling with uh, various forms of mental illness. My husband's late mother was a survivor of three concentration camps. And so she suffered from obviously what we know is post-traumatic stress disorder. And 
some survivor guilt. And those are also themes that come up in my book, The Sleep of Apples, that I feel that I know. I guess I'm just really, really fascinated in, in people. And, you know, when we say mental illness, we're slapping a label on it. Anyone, I think it's so important to know how fragile we all are and that anyone can, you know, become depressed. Anyone can become anxious. Some people are more prone, but, you know, it, we have to have empathy. And I, I'm very disturbed by the stigmas that still exists. Um, against people who are suffering with mental illness. We haven't, you know, advanced that far. And I hope that my book will help to raise awareness of that, reducing stigma. Yeah, absolutely. That's something I'm really interested in as well as reducing stigma. I always tell people like, you go to the gym to exercise your body. It's also healthy to like, talk to a therapist and like, kind of work mm -hmm. through your mind, you know, give it a little tune up, you know, <laughs> it helps. Oh, I'm a big believer in therapy. <laughs> it's, you know, helped me a lot in my life. And, um, you know, big believer, if you get the right person, it really can be very, very helpful. Yeah, exactly. It really, it really can. And seeing all these dynamics, like you said, that play in your own life and in those around you, it can really help mm -hmm. you understand people and yourself and the world a lot better. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And can help you cope with things and just get some perspective that your friends or your loved ones cannot always give to you, you know, because the person is not in your life in that way. Totally. So. I actually wish they would teach like coping skills in like junior high or something like just have it like as part of health class. Like these are some coping strategies to manage stress kids. <laughs> Everyone can use them. Definitely, Especially now, right? <laughs> with everything going on. Yeah, especially. And that's also the thing about your books. It's like, these are all, like you said, just parts of being a human. And it's just like not avoiding topics that some people try to avoid. You know, it's just like delving into them and in all these different facets of what it is to be human. Yeah, I think it's important if you're going to write, you know, write about something that matters. Um, I, I'm impatient with writing that's only about, you know, technique or language. Like, I want to I want to have it all, you know, a great story, layered characters, you know, topics that are important. So I try to do that. I try to write the kind of book that I would love to read. It's my goal. It's my, you know, aspiration. <laughs> what are some of your other books, your earlier books? Well, the first book that I wrote was probably the most autobiographical. It was originally called Love Out of Bounds, and I wish I'd kept that title. <laughs> And it ultimately became called, Can You See Me? Question mark. And it's about a brother and sister and who are really close in childhood who share a secret place and a private language. And uh, then the brother in the teenage years becomes schizophrenic. So it was the closest book to something I was grappling with personally. A big difference is that in the, in can you see me? And that's a question the brother asks, can you see me? Like, can you see me? Just, he's not sure if, if other people see what he sees. Um, the really fictional element of this book is that I go into the, deeply into the point of view of the character of Doran Solomon, the brother from childhood all the way through when he becomes ill. And then there's some invented elements um, in the novel, uh, lots of invented elements, but that was a real act of 
sort of empathy and imagination. And I, it goes into his entire hallucinatory world. So that was also extremely fictional. So that was my first novel. And it was, it was very intense to write and, and painful in certain ways, um, especially going into the brother's point of view. I would leave my desk sometimes in tears and it was difficult, but I feel proud of that book. And then I wrote my first story collection called Blood Knots, which are sort of about characters on the edge and marginal characters. It was kind of linked thematically. And that book has a lot on motherhood and, and some of the transgressive elements about motherhood that weren't being written about. One story, a woman leaves her son in one of those, um, like a K of ball play places. And you don't know if she's going to go back and get him. She's just like pushed to the limit. She's a single mother. So that was a thematically um, linked story collection. And then my next novel was called The White Space Between, which won the Canadian Jewish Book Award. And that was about a mother and daughter sort of coping with the impact of the Holocaust. The mother was a Holocaust survivor and she hadn't shared much of her past with her daughter. Her daughter became a marionette maker and puppeteer where she could kind of, you know, have complete control of this miniature world, but she didn't really know about her mother's history. And there was no father in the picture. She didn't know who her father was. And one of the mother's big hobbies is creating this big memory book, scrapbook that she shares with her daughter. <clears throat> but as you read the book, you, you're wondering like, how much of this memory book is true and how much is invented. So there are secrets that are, that are disclosed. So it's kind of about the experience of the mother because she testifies at one of these witness centers. So you get like sections of what she's been through in the Holocaust and the impact in the present. And I dedicated that to my husband's um, late mom. And I, I had had, we had this incredible tape um, of her, Brana, Brana Hokova, talking about her life in her own voice. She was from Slatinskadali, Czechoslovakia. She's from a Hasidic family and huge family, multiple siblings, and all murdered in the Holocaust, except for one sister escaped through being hidden on a farm. One brother escaped into the army and one, and Brana, survived three concentration camps, but she died very, very young from what she went through in the camp. So it wasn't literally Brana's story, but hearing her voice on that tape um, really in, in a, in enabled me to do the character of the mother. She still had, a, even though she'd lived in England and she lived in the States, she still had that kind of Czech accent and this beautiful voice. So that was that novel. And then after that, um, I wrote the novel In Many Waters, which kind of grapples with the refugee crisis and deals with a young Libyan girl who tries to get to Malta and a brother and sister who are Jewish from a Maltese Jewish background and sort of the relationships that spark between those characters. And then I think that brings us up to the sleep of apples. 
all really beautiful and intense books. Now I want to read some of your earlier books as well. No, I hope so. you. <laughs> it's hard to kind of encapsulize them because, you know, no, the novel is a big thing and it can encompass a lot. So, um, yeah, I feel I feel happy that in this short life that I'm I'm doing the work that I want to be doing. That really means a lot to me because I know so many people that they they're doing work that they hate and they keep deferring what they want to do. And, you know, I kind of just grabbed it knowing that I wanted to do this and it feels good. <laughs> yeah, it's inspiring. And I think if anything, that the pandemic has really helped a lot of people realize, like, why am I doing this? I need to act now and do what I really want or do what really excites me because, you know, you never know what's going to happen in life. Oh, it's so true. Yeah, I think sometimes life experiences will do that. Um, a, an illness or something like the pandemic will sort of mobilize people to really think about what matters in their life. Exactly, and these wars. Um, yeah, and you mentioned, of course, Holocaust and the Holocaust survivors, and that's something in psychoanalysis that's really how analysts started understanding how much of this kind of trauma in life history is transmitted sort of unconsciously, because so many people that emigrated, say, to the U.S. weren't speaking about it, or they changed their names, and they were trying to kind of, you know, keep it repressed to be safe, and then their children and their grandchildren had symptoms or had things they were kind of enacting in their lives that were like mirroring things that had happened that they didn't understand where they were coming from and kind of learned to understand it from the, their psychoanalysis. It's, it's so true. Um, it's kind of like a ghost trauma, I think, for children and grandchildren. And I know, you know, my husband is a, a child of survivor who's not alive anymore, his mom. But you know, people would hear that and they'd say, oh, you know, he's got to watch Schindler's List or he's got to, you don't take my husband to a Holocaust movie because it's unbearable because he kind of embodies what his mother went through. And I don't even want to go into it on, on this interview, but no, he doesn't want to go watch a movie about it. Um, but it is definitely uh, goes down the generations um, and that was a very fulfilling book to write. And I'm glad I had his support. Again, it was, it was interesting when I wrote it, certain people contacted me and they, they thought that they were the main character, um, but of course they weren't. And his mother was, I dedicated the book to her and to his family, but again, it's fiction. So there's elements of um, imagination, fantasy, as well as, you know, reality. Beautiful. So what are you going to work on next? <laughs> well, I'm working on another novel at this point, and it's about, it kind of dovetails with what I was just speaking about. It's about a young, many of the things we've been speaking about today. It's a young girl, a Hasidic Jewish girl in Montreal from the Lubavitcher community, which is one of the, you know, extreme Orthodox communities who has a mental breakdown and is hospitalized at the Montreal Jewish Hospital, sorry, the Montreal General Hospital in the children's ward. And it's about the bond that she forms with the secular Jewish therapist who takes care of her when she's in the hospital. And just both of their lives is called Treasures That Prevail, which is from an Adrian Rich poem. And 
I've always been fascinated in, you know, the complexities of, of the Hasidic groups. And so I'm researching. And then also there is this family history that on my husband's side, the whole family in the past was Hasidic. So there's a personal connection and it deals with the mental health issues I'm concerned with. It's sort of about what is faith? What does faith mean? Um, I'm trying to delve into not only what's restricting about the religion, but are there beautiful elements as well? I mean, she's someone who's broken away from it. Um, so that's the book that I'm immersed in now going forward. Yeah, exactly. Jen sounds very dynamic and looking at kind of multiple sides of things and not just seeing things as like two dimensional, you know? Mm -hmm. It's For really sure. important. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to? Um, nothing that I can think of. I think we pretty much covered quite a bit. <laughs> so I really appreciate you inviting me to be in the podcast. And I, I love the subject of your podcast, this sort of intersection of, uh, you know, psychoanalysis and art and psychology and art. It's, it's really interesting to me. So. Yeah, exactly. My goal is to get kind of more psychological ideas out there to more general audience so that people can just use them in their own lives and see how they're more accessible and usable and not just like for people in graduate school or clinics or. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and through the arts is always the best way. Like you said, in literature, you can write such rich characters and really experience a journey or in film. I just finished literally this morning I handed in the manuscript uh, an edited collection on the films of Ingmar Bergman. And oh, so I've wow. been watching a lot of Bergman films and the psychological depth in these characters and their kind of uh, erotic relationships. So it's just so amazing. Yeah, his work is amazing. I mean, I still remember some of those films that I saw like decades ago. They're just devastating, some of them. So powerful, so, so. And just the actors he used are just incredible. They really are. And there's one in there that I hadn't seen before, but I've been like watching a lot of the ones that I hadn't seen yet to, to get ready to put this book together. And I watched one called Shame, which was actually about this couple that was on this island and they had been um, musicians in like the Philharmonic Orchestra. And then like war came to their territory and it was like them just trying to kind of live their lives. They moved from the city out to like a small farmhouse to like kind of be safe. And then they started just, instead of being musicians, they were like growing vegetables and trying to sell berries in the town just to like make uh -huh. a living and get and get by. And then you'd see like both sides of, of kind of the war, like the, the politicians would come and like interrogate them to see if they were like on the side of the rebels. And then the rebels would come and like interrogate them to see like where they stood in position. And really they didn't want to be involved with any of it. You know, they were just trying to like live their lives. But like the two sides were like making them kind of choose and they were trying to kind of manage this. And it was actually really difficult to watch. It was when he's he's always pretty difficult to watch, but this film Shame was like, it was so difficult to watch this couple struggling through this, you know. And then at the end, 
I can tell the end. They just end up like they're trying to escape and they get onto a boat um, to try to flee. And then the boat is just like adrift in the ocean. And then that's where it ends. It's just like, <laughs> that's, that's it. a powerful image. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, his stuff is, it really, really burrows in for sure. Um, I have to see that one. It's one that I, I think I missed, so. Yeah, I hadn't heard of it before. My husband got, they just for his centennial was in 2018. And so Criterion put out a box set with all, oh. the, with all the films and like his short films and everything and all with English subtitles, which helps. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it was so lovely to get to speak with you. I mean, if you ever want to come back and talk about future bugs, you're more than welcome. Well, thanks so much. And thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed our talk. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with author Amy Sands Brodoff. For more, visit her website, amysandsbrodoff.com. You can also find the Rendering Unconscious podcast website, renderingunconscious.org, for links and more information. You may also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net, or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at rawsin underscore. That's R-A-W-S-I-N underscore. I've also recently joined TikTok, where I'm uploading clips of Rendering Unconscious podcast as well as other videos. Follow at drvanessasinclair23 at TikTok. And now the song, My Consciousness Changes, from the album, The Pathways of the Heart, available at the Highbrow Low Life Bandcamp page. That's highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. Enjoy. they were back to being awkward again. Her, the present situation, by dampening the feeding toned portions of the often see severe anxiety and depression because the patient adapts to a fact that it's cooler in that school I go to and even cooler in is therefore always potentially subversive to those attachments. 
attachment even at to be, which is then solidified by the repetition of similar experiences that validate that. Impulsive makes quick decisions without carefully considering the consequences of the decisions. Transference as psychoanalytic method were indisputable to forensi. Psychoanalysis really began with Freud's theory on dreams. Rather than creating a body of not knowing how to rid myself of them, polluting my insides where I have no right to be. But this is no ordinary case. You know, I love that girl and wanted to marry her. But although that's all past and gone, help feeling anxious about her all the time. Down and says in a low voice to his wife, stretching out his hand, Pierre, there, look. Thirty yards away from them, the head of a white fox, the sexual response and the female orgasm, unquenchable fire. Although it is a force, it is a work that leads to an intimate. The body is prepared. It stimulates movement, pose, that issue from, or intelligence, hazardous problems are created. How was it even possible that a woman asked herself while realizing that watching this expected it, but there it was, they just kept on, my consciousness changes and I'm able to what the other requires, in my blood, Lilith, in my body, Lilith, in my and you, Sunday night dresses, dying out, back on a stretch, Attachments, Kerouac, Ginsburg, Burroughs, Herbert Hunke, and Neil Cassidy.